Well, it's a privilege to be with you again and to open God's Word together. I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We are in, yes, it's official, we're in the last chapter of Hebrews, and I'm excited to preach to you a sermon that is abruptly practical. It's like we are going from lofty, lofty platitudes of um, Mount Sinai and the thunder of God's presence and the giving of the law and people trembling in fear versus heaven and Zion and Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem and God's grace that shed abroad to new covenant Christians who come to Christ through his blood. And all of that has to mean something in terms of living life as a Christian here on earth. It's been said that you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. You can reverse that. You can be so earthly minded that you become no heavenly good, but really it's both, right? We have to be heavenly minded. We have to have our hearts sore from being in sort of shackled by the law's demands and breaking through that into the hope of heaven, knowing that we are with Christ through his shed blood. We're as if already there seated next to God at the right hand with Christ We have to get there. We have to believe that by the Holy Spirit's empowerment. God has to seal that truth in our hearts. But then that's got to go somewhere. That's got to do something to our attitude and to our actions. This text that we're going to is just a hard shift into the practical it was talking about uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were in it and it was talking about a kingdom that is unshakable. God's going to shake this world up and shake loose all of its sin and corruption. Everything that's of sin is going to be shaken away and dissolve. And then what's unshakable, which is you and I believers, we're still here. So what does all of that do right now in your life? That's what is begged here with chapter 13. Let me just read a few verses to get us going. It says, verse one, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let's stop there. Verses four through six sort of are bracketed in the practical. Verse four talks about marriage, talks about the marriage bed being undefiled. The next section is about money, keeping your life. Look at verse five, keep your life free from the love of money. These are very, very important and practical topics. We're just going to cover the first two verses and the first two topics this morning, though, just to sort of set the stage so you don't think, man, we've got four verses left and he's just on point one. That's not how you should think. We don't want to just skim through this too quickly. The first verse says, let brotherly love Continue. 
Love is so essential to the Christian's life and faith and experience. First Corinthians 13 says, if you don't have love, you have nothing, nothing as a believer. If you don't have love and you name the name of Christ, you have zero going on in your life for Christ. You have to have love. This is the call to let brotherly love continue. That word continue is a marathoning word, which is the theme of Hebrews in terms of the practical. Hebrews chapter 12, we're running the race that is set before us. Verse one, we're looking to Jesus. We're persevering on this Jesus path all the way to glory. And so perseverance is love and love or loving is persevering. A soft-hearted disposition. The word for love here is, it's a brotherly love, Philadelphia love, phileo, which is the love that is friendship, the love that is affections for someone. And it's in particular brotherly love, love in terms of brothers in the body of Christ. So what is persevering? What does marathoning look like for you as a Christian? It means that you continue to love people in the body of Christ with an especial love. Your heart longs for people within the body. You love them to love everyone, but we have a special love for people who are brothers and sisters in the body. And you and I feel that right now, or we should. You should long to be with people but especially people in the body. I got a phone call last night for someone who was in a car wreck and that person was calling me back, getting ready to go into surgery. And my heart loved that person through the phone, just thinking what that person must be going through. And he's probably fine and things are fine, but it's still a test to see where you are spiritually to test yourself with a verse like this and say, am I persevering? Am I continuing to love people in the church? Is my heart wired that way? Galatians 5, 22, the fruit of the spirit is what? Love, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is what? Love, love is a dominant, essential experience within the Christian life. It marks us in the practical Love is everything to us because 1 John 4 says, God is love. God is love. And we're glad that God is love because he loved us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us and loved us. And we love him because what? He first loved us. John's gospel says this, John 15, 11 to 13. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. How do you brim full with joy? This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Love each other. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. There are four types of love in classic Greek literature. In the Bible, there's two primary words that represent love. One is phileo that I mentioned before, which is the affection, affectionate love, brotherly love in the family of God. And then there's agapao, which is, or agape love, which is where you are willing to lay down your life. It's a willing choice to love someone. It's sacrificial love. It's the call to obey. It's obedience, love. 
So you have this phileo, you have this feelings that you have towards people. And then you have agapao, which is the doing or sacrificing or giving that is love. There's eros, which is the love of romance. And there is uh, storge, which is the love of empathy. But all of this is the Christian's experience. First John 2, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Love and lust are always in competition. There is Christian love, real love, and then there's the perverted misconstrual of love that our culture and media blast at us all of the time. The whole marketing strategy of the culture is to pervert our thinking about love and draw us through lust into buying the world's emptiness. All of these misconstruals. Love is not reduced to lust. Love is not relations. Love is not serendipitous. Love is not experience merely. Love is not romance merely. Love is not happenstance. Love is not personality meshing. That's not love. The world will market that, but that's not what it is. Love is not mere emotion. Love is not mere sacrifice. Love is not mere accommodation where you accommodate egalitarianism or oneness or this postmodernism where we just say, hey, everything fits. That's not love. Tolerance is not love. Pain-free living is not love. Looking the other way is not necessarily love. We shouldn't reduce it to these levels. This is what the world will do. Love is based on truth. Love is based on God. Love is exclusive in terms of the gospel. To love someone is to tell them the truth that they are a sinner in need of grace that can only be found through Christ. That's the narrow path of exclusive love, but that's true love. Intolerance is not, tolerance is not love. So we love people. We love people within the body of Christ. Why? You love people because Romans 5, 5 says that the Holy Spirit has poured love into your heart. That's why you love. Christians love. Christians have a new heart. They have a heart that has capacities to love that it did not have otherwise. Christ has changed you and transformed you to love. Scripture says this again and again. The whole gospel narrative is about love. And we're called, according to Hebrews 13, 1, to keep loving. First Thessalonians 4 talks about how that church loved, and it was so easy for them, that the only challenge for them was to do it still more. First Thessalonians 4, 9 through 10. They had brotherly love, verse 9. Paul said, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. We urge you brothers to do this more and more. Some people say, well, I'm not naturally a loving person. I wasn't raised to be loving. Alaska is an interesting place because it's, it's given to isolation. It's given to space in a lot of ways. And yet when people are, find themselves in desperate or dire circumstances, suddenly love and the community comes out. What well, should be this way for the church. We should not long to be in isolation. We should long to be together, long to love each other. 
And even if we are prohibited in some ways to be together, we should still in our hearts be softly wanting to be together. We're looking at uh, four categories that will either indict us that we are unloving, expose us that we are being unloving, or will confirm to us ways that we should be loving or are loving. This is a test. This is a cautionary test. This is a pass-fail in terms of how you're doing in terms of your brotherly love. There's four categories in front of us. These are ways to love and ways that our love is tested. What we're looking at this morning is the mission. It's living the mission. You love God when you want his mission. You love people when you want his mission. We're going to look at the mistreated. That'll be the second category we'll get to this morning. Those who are mistreated, we have to love people who are being persecuted. And then we're going to look next week at the marriage bed and marriage. And then fourthly, we're going to look at money. These are tests in terms of our love. Do you love the mission? And in a lot of ways, these two first two verses are making up a mission sermon. First three verses, I should say. This is a mission sermon. I couldn't preach all six verses because the first three are about missions. Suddenly this is Mission Sunday. Here we are in quarantine, suffering a pandemic. Nobody can travel anywhere. And so are you tempted to think missions is dried up and done? Do you think God has been diverted by a sudden virus that he wasn't aware of? surprised him no missions is going and it's happening and we need to find out in these verses what God is doing and what he expects of us even in mission verse two look at this do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers this is the first way our love is tested it's living the mission through hospitality Now, when I bring up hospitality, please do not immediately relegate that to Southern hospitality. Now, I was from the South, am from the South. All of my children were born in the South before they came here and got right with God. No. So I can hear you laugh on the other end. All that to say, hospitality is a broader subject than just having people over and presenting a good meal. That's a blessing and that can be part of hospitality. But hospitality in terms of these opening verses has to do with mission work, mission work. It's the idea of opening your home. And I think it's appropriately translated here, opening your home to strangers, people that you perhaps have never met before in your life that you're opening your home to. Yeah, you're resource sharing And you're sharing your food and you're sharing your accommodations. It's sharing, but it's more than that because a lot of times the strangers that would be coming in were those commended by the church. Hopefully safe people that are being brought into your home, even though you've, you know them by name or perhaps you're getting to know them for the first time and you're bringing them into your house and you're putting them up as they pass through on the mission field. Now, what does that mean? Well, a lot of the travel was pedestrian back then as people were coming through and hotels and, and, you know, the amenities of our modern age didn't exist back then. I'm sure they had inns and they had places for people to stay, but uh, those would be high dollar and perhaps 
unreachable for a traveling preacher, a traveling missionary, a traveling Christian that's perhaps being pursued and persecuted and, and you're putting them up. Think of how Rahab uh, housed the spies. That's just, if you look over in chapter 11, verse uh, 31, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She housed them at risk of her own life. That's the seriousness of the New Testament church. That's the seriousness of the persecuted church already happening in our world today. So don't just relegate this to back then. We need to pray for people who are under fire, who are housing people, perhaps people they don't even know, but they're doing it for the sake of the gospel at risk of their own securities. Now, I want to be quick to say, you don't want to put your children at risk with a stranger. You want to be wise. You want to be careful. But at the same time, when you're inviting someone into your home who is a gospel worker, where you view your home as a place for renewal, a place for respite, a place to refuel someone who's part of gospel work, the gospel stories that will come up as you fellowship in your mealtime, as you, as you have dessert together, as you pass the coffee around. Now, these are the days when we won't be in quarantine. Look, this thing is going to end eventually. It's where you're housing people and you're talking to them and you're fellowshipping with them. And, and the stories that those gospel workers will share from their outpost to your outpost will suddenly enliven the hearts of your kids or other people that are listening. Uh, that, that will dig deeper in the hearts than anything else normally. It's very powerful. Missionaries or gospel workers or Christians passing through that can share their stories will invade the hearts of the listeners. I have mentioned this man uh, before. He's a preacher in Africa. His name's Conrad in Bayway, and he and his wife came, and um, we hosted Conrad at our house uh, for a Bible study, and he stayed after for um, some coffee and some time together. And we were talking to him about um, Zambia, Africa, and we were talking about. Um, how demons and, and, and demonic activity can, can be part of um, different works that they were working in. And, and what is that like? And I, I just remember the stories that he was telling us about um, just demonic influence and, and Christ um, prevailing over all of that. And that's powerful. I could tell some stories from this side of the world, from Anchorage, that are powerful for other people to hear. And you can share those stories as well. Things that are unique to this culture, to this place, to this church environment. And when you share those stories with people, don't underestimate the power of influence through that. That's the power of hospitality to strangers. It's caring for people within your flock and caring for people within the wider church. Third John talks about this. I love third John. It's that little one chapter letter, first, second, and third John verses five through eight is talking specifically about this. It says, beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts. This is the aged apostle John writing perhaps in um, AD 70 or towards AD 80. It's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers, as they are, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. 
You're replenishing them, refreshing them. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, accepting nothing from the world. That's what that means there. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I know many people within our church who regularly contribute to missions and missionaries. And when they come to town, there are people within our church who just, they, they just latch on to a missionary that's going to show up and say, I want to house them. I want to keep them because they've entered into the blessing of missions through housing and supporting and building relationships with people who are out there in the world. And we say we can connect with the world through social media. We can connect, you know, in all kinds of ways. So why do I need to make it personal like this? Well, if you miss the personal, you're, you're missing an engagement level that you can't otherwise have. When people show up, face-to-face contact is amazing. We're starved for that right now. I was able to worship in basically this empty gym where you had people up here and they were leading us in worship and it was great. But the drums just blasting in the room, being live with the music was more powerful. It was, it was powerful for me. I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but I'm just saying it was, it was great. And in a lot, in the same way, when we have that personal contact with people, it's powerful. It's important to do that. A lot of people house missionaries. They use their living quarters. They use an extra home they might have to accommodate the mission. Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints to seek to show hospitality, hospitality. It's a important character of the Christian. It's a, it's an element of character. It's an important character element for the Christian. Christians should love in this way. You say, well, how do you know whether to do this or not? Well, you should be looking to love people and accommodate them in unique ways that the Holy Spirit is designing for you to do that in. You say, I haven't been engaged in missions. I'm I'm out of touch in that way. Pray and say, God, how can I give something that I own, some of my possessions, some of my um, stuff, how can I do that for the furtherance of the kingdom? How can I lend my car, lend, give some of my food away? How do I bring this blessing home in my heart? How do I stay soft and persevere in love in this way? Ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to see what you're supposed to do. That's what God calls us to do. It's the character of a, of a uh, elder is called to do this. First Timothy three, two, the qualifications of the elders says, therefore an overseer, which is also an elder, which is also a pastor must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober minded, self-controlled, respectable. Here it is hospitable. You have to be about this to be an elder. You have to be able to teach Titus one, seven and eight. Listen to this for an overseer. As God's steward must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. All of that. You can't be those things. You can't be arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent. You can't be greedy for gain. But, by contrast, but hospitable. You can't be about yourself. You can't be all up in yourself. You, verse 8, have to be hospitable. You got to be a giver. Qualifications of godly women in the church, the widows that were beyond 60, that were to be cared for by the church and put on a list. They were called widows indeed. First Timothy 5, 9 and 10 says, let the widow 
A widow who's to be enrolled if she is no less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. She's brought up children and she has shown hospitality. Uh, synonymous with showing hospitality. She's washed the feet of the saints. She's cared for the afflicted and she's devoted herself to every good work. Hospitality is devotional. You say my Christian life is stale. Well, be hospitable, be hospitable. Don't you, not just having people over. It's doing it for the sake of mission, seeing the, the far reaching impact of what it might mean that you were hospitable. You say we're in such a remote place in the world. It doesn't matter. Paul was put in prison and that because he was in jail, he wrote the prison epistles, much of what we see in the New Testament. We never know why we are where we are or who, why someone's passing through that's passing through. But it's an amazing opportunity to be that person on the way in someone's Christian journey. Just a mission post, a, a refresh station, a pit stop while the person's running or driving their race car around. You're, you're helping them on the way. And so many people funnel or sort of cycle through Alaska, don't they? This is such an interesting port town where people are coming in and out. And it gives us a great opportunity oftentimes to influence people that are unlikely that you wouldn't meet otherwise if you didn't live here. So we should be antenna up about this and thinking about this. Well, what does it mean? Let me just open this up. What does it mean at the end of verse two, where it says, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now I grew up uh, and if my parents are watching this, uh, you know, it, it just was part of what they influenced me to believe. I grew up believing that I could uh, be entertaining someone that is an angel and I don't know that that person's an angel. That was, you know, kind of the understanding. And some of you were taught the same thing, um, you know, sort of the Michael Landon effect. I don't remember that highway to heaven. It's like, oh, he, you know, he looks like a really nice person, but really he's an angel undercover. Well, I'm not sure that's exactly what the scripture is saying. It is true that when angels appeared, they, uh, when they would be communicating with human beings, they were always male. That you don't see female angels or ch children angels or cherubs. Um, you don't, there's, there's not that idea of a child angel or something like that in scripture. They are communicating to you or communicating to them uh, with a language that could be understood. So the whole angel language is really not um, what was happening as people spoke, you think of the angels that were, you know, the heavenly hosts and they were speaking to the shepherds or the angels that spoke to those who came to the open tomb. Uh, they, they were bright and brilliant and impressive. And, and people knew that they were talking to supernatural beings, but they were uh, portrayed in a human body and a human form. This is an illusion and a direct reference to Abraham and Sarah's experience and also Lot's experience. Genesis 18, one to three is the Abraham account with angels with three men, it says. And I just want to point out the fact that Abraham, Sarah and Lot all treated their angel encounter in a remarkable way. They bowed, they called them Lord, they rushed to give them hospitality just listen, we're not going to open up all of these chapters, but verses one to three of Genesis 18. And the Lord appeared to him, that's Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. 
He lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. He wouldn't have done that just to human beings or angels who were undercover. He knew that they were supernatural beings and said, Oh Lord, if I have favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. It very well could be that one of the angels was really the Lord himself in a Christophany showing up, speaking, giving the prophetic word to the hearing of Sarah that she was going to be with child, even though she'd been barren and beyond childbearing age. That's chapter 18. Chapter 19, this is the view of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah when Sodom was going to be destroyed and the angels were saying to Sodom, I mean to Lot, we're warning you and we're pulling you and your family out of here because you're believers. It says the two angels, Genesis 19, 1, came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting at the gate in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth And said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. They, both Lot and Abraham, they knew something special was going on when they were in the presence of angels. So I don't think that's the point here in Verse three, that angels will come um, undercover. It's, it's more this. It's the idea that we are entertaining, uh, verse two, I should have said, we are entertaining people in the same spirit as which Abraham and Sarah and Lot entertained those angels. When you, you say, well, what is so supernatural and so powerful and mega experiential for the Christian life when you house someone? Well, if you're asking that question, then you're kind of missing the point of the significance of hospitality. When you house someone for the gospel, when you give some safety to someone in gospel work, when you are caring for someone in kingdom work, on the outside, it might look like you're just putting someone up Place to stay, making it convenient. But on the inside, what God is doing is something powerful and you don't know the far-reaching impact that's being made as you help someone along the way in the mission of the gospel. You don't know. You don't know what it means to engage people and engage ministry in that way. We never know. Uh, God is always advancing his kingdom in remarkable ways. Why are we... Uh, hearing the word of God this morning. Why am I preaching to you via live stream? I don't know. Really this room, it's exciting to me because I have a task and a mission in front of me and I always am excited preaching the word. But this room's not a very exciting room right now. I mean, I'm kind of looking at a few faces. I mean, they're not standing up, you know, shouting glory, waving hankies and screaming amens. Yeah, I, I, I see you. All right, yeah, there's a little bit of activity now, barely. But there's something powerful that's going on behind the scenes. Anytime the word of God is going out, it's powerful. It could be opening up your heart to something that you've been staving off, something you didn't want to do, some some way that you didn't want to give, some way that you were keeping your heart closed like a shut door to an opportunity that God wanted to open up. We don't know. But the word of God's doing that work. 
because the word's being opened. And that's what hospitality is like. Hospitality is humble work. It's menial work. It's, it's like washing the feet of the saints. It's serving food. It's being humble. I'm sure when Jesus walked around with his disciples and non, in, in non-miraculous events and non-miraculous moments, things looked pretty normal. Just walking around, teaching, talking. But the words that were going out were powerfully impacting and setting the stage for the church to grow and expand and have the world impact that it does even going on today. Paul in prison, very behind the scenes, very non-rock star for him to sit in a prison under accusation, under threat of execution. And he's pinning out by the Holy Spirit, the words of life to us, putting the gospel out for us so that we can be Freed from our sins as we see the truth and the truth sets us free. So the first pass fail category here is to love through hospitality. To see that and to be soft towards that. Number two, number two, it's identifying with those who are mistreated. Verse three is this association. It says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. What does this mean? Again, the early church persecution and that theme is part of this command. So we're not just talking about missions to prisons and prison ministry. That's valid. It's effective. Uh, Often it's evangelistic. Or finding someone who's at the end of the rope that needs counseling, that needs help, that needs encouragement. Those people who come to faith in Christ because they are clear about their sins and they're clear about the penalty of their sins, at least in a physical sense, who then are open to hear the truth and see God change them on the inside, even if they're not going to get back out on the outside anytime soon. We also hear revivals happening in prisons. I've heard of them. I've heard of whole seminaries being born where people are being trained for ministry and ministry within prison and having church there. That's true. And that's a true reality in missions and commendable. But that's not exactly what this verse is talking about. This is talking specifically about people who are put in prison for their faith. People who are jailed because they are believers. People who are incarcerated, not for being obnoxious or rude or anti-authoritarian. I mean, the Bible says for us to be submissive. And as far as we can be submissive in terms of being in concert with God's word and being submissive to governing authorities, we want to do that. We want the gospel to reign. Paul was put in prison and he in Philippians 1 said there are people who are being mean to him, people who were mocking him, people who were verbally persecuting him and mocking him from the outside, but they were still giving the gospel out there. And he said, praise the Lord for that. I'm glad at least the gospel is going out, even if it's against me in one sense. What was going on? Well, the early church in this time was being persecuted. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse four says that there was a struggle where you're struggling against sin. You're trying to be righteous in a culture, but it says you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, Christians at this point, at this stage under Neronian or Nero's um, leadership, they were not being killed for the gospel. They hadn't shed their blood yet. That's what it's saying. But, It was sort of up to that level. 
It was getting closer and closer. Imagine that. Hebrews chapter 10, a couple um, chapters earlier, speaks of this kind of persecution. Even to the point where some were wanting to throw away their confidence. Hebrews 10, 35. If you back up a couple verses, it talks about verse 32. It says, but recall the former days, Hebrews 10, 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured, here it is, a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This is point two. Point one is to have the test of love through connecting with the mission and hospitality. Point two is identifying with those mistreated, identifying with people that are going to get you in trouble also really is another way to put it. If you identify with people who are gospel citizens who wear it on their sleeve in our culture presently, your life will be different because of that association presently. Now we know our culture has been flipping and flopping and has been flipped in a lot of ways because of this virus, something that is not a direct threat to Christianity at all. But the speed at which our environment and our circumstances have flipped should shock us awake to the fact that things could flip very quickly to us in terms of persecution. I don't wish it upon us. I can't prognosticate when or how that would happen. But we need to be ready for it. We need to understand that the church has always been persecuted, is being persecuted around the world. And this early church was was being hurt by public exposure, reproach, affliction. And Christians were commended in verse 34 for having compassion on those in prison, uh, being willing to associate with those who were incarcerated, putting themselves at risk. But the risk was so great that they were even um, tempted at points, verse 35, to throw away their confidence, to throw away the gospel, to just shut it off, to say, I don't even know if I want to be associated with the gospel anymore because I'm losing my stuff. It's a ministry to the persecuted church. Paul was exhorting Timothy. You remember in 2 Timothy chapter 2, this is, or chapter 1, this is Paul's sort of last will and testament where he's giving 2 Timothy as the last letter before he goes to his final execution. He's in a Mamertine prison. He's going to be lifted through a small little window out by the Roman courts and they were going to cut his head off before that was to happen. He wrote this to Timothy. Second Timothy one seven, he says, for God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So you're, you're not given a spirit of fear. What is he talking about? He's calling Timothy to a fearless faith in light of the fact that Paul's in jail. Now, Paul's under the threat. So why is he saying to Timothy, you need to not fear the threat? Because Timothy's close association with Paul was putting Timothy in the same threat that Paul was in. 
Paul was going to be killed. So if you're friends with Paul, you're in danger. It's just like the disciples who fled when Jesus was taken at Gethsemane. And Peter denied Christ three times because of that same kind of threat. And he's, Paul is saying to Timothy, don't be afraid. God has given you a gospel that's filled with power and love and self-control. Verse eight, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You know, in the same context, though some fled association with Paul, Ones, his name is Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus did not. He did not. Chapter one, verse 15 says, you may, you are aware of all who are, who are in Asia turned away from me among whom are Phrygelus, Phygelus and Hermogenes. But the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he had refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Here's hospitality. He refreshed me, but here's association with someone who's being mistreated. He was not ashamed of my bonds, not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. He looked for me. He wanted to put himself, Onesiphorus wanted to put himself in this crosshairs of a situation. He searched, meaning he asked, where's Paul? Where is he? I want to see him. I want to refresh him. I want to be hospitable to Paul on the field. You know, it's interesting. There's missions and there's evangelism to those who are in prison. And then there is evangelism from those who are in prison. It's not a minister going to the jail. It's the minister who's already in jail. That's just an interesting way to look at this. It's a different vantage point. Where's the minister? Well, he's already in the prison because he was put there for his faith, but he was put there strategically in isolation. Paul, watch this, in quarantine, separated, alone, isolated, sending out New Testament, Holy Spirit inspired letters to pervade the world that were going to be perennially inspiring and saving gospel letters for years and years and years to this day. Why are we in quarantine? Why are we in this situation? I don't know. Believe me. So glad it's sunny outside here in Alaska now and the snow is melting and things are seemingly freeing up. But I don't want to just push aside all of the whys and wherefores for going through this. We don't know why we've been put in the situations that we've been put in, but it undoubtedly is for gospel work. And Paul was part of that. And he was saying in his case, don't be ashamed of me, Timothy, associate with me like Onesiphorus did. And in Paul's earlier imprisonment, when he was under house arrest in Rome, do you remember the whole story of Philemon and Onesimus, Onesimus, who sought out Paul for safe haven as a slave. He found Paul and was 
sort of adopted by Paul, spiritually converted through the testimony of the gospel in Paul. And Onesimus then was sent back to Philemon to be welcomed back as a brother. All of this under the church of Colossae or, you know, the Colossians letter was written uh, by Paul to that church at Colossae. But the pastor, there was Epaphras and Epaphras was also someone who went back and forth to Paul to help him under house arrest. So back to 2 Timothy, where Paul was in the Mamertine prison going towards execution. In 2 Timothy 4, he just wrote this, these final words. He said, Demas, who was in love in this love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Luke alone is with me. This is an association, a close, dear association, the gospel writer Luke. Then get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. John Mark, who had abandoned him on the second missionary or the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas, John Mark, Barnabas's nephew, abandons the cause, gets scared, goes home. Then there's full restoration later on with John Mark and Paul because Paul didn't want John Mark on the second and third missionary journey. But in the end, In Paul's final letter, his final moment, all he wants is John Mark to be with him. This is gospel work. This is gospel association. What's the motive for all of this? Look back for a second to Hebrews 13. It says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. Why do you do this? Because your heart is with them. Why would you associate with someone who's being mistreated? Why would you associate with someone that's going to cause problems for you with the world? Your heart is with them. You're part of them. You're part of the body with them. And those who are mistreated. Hey, when someone is being mistreated, perhaps in an abusive home where you have a spouse who's being abused for their faith, your heart is with them. You're with them in, in the fire interceding, intervening if necessary. Your heart is with them in those situations. That's what it's talking about. Even those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. How important is all of this? How significant is it that you have this kind of persevering, soft-hearted love? Let me tell you how important it is real quickly. Just... Listen for a second. This is the difference between being a Christian or not being a Christian. Eternity is divided in terms of whether you have love in your heart that looks like this or not. Christians, they do the mission. They're part of the mission. Christians do it. They get it. They see it. Christians are hospitable. Christians are soft in this way. Christians persevere in this way. Christians associate with persecuted Christians. They do. That's Christianity. You say, where do I get that from? Well, Matthew 25 is the teaching of Jesus where Jesus said as much. It's the sheep's and goats judgment. That's Matthew 25. This is eschatological future end times gospel writing. This is gospel chapters about the end. You know, there's two in the field, one stays and one is suddenly gone. That's the language of Matthew 25. This is sheep's goats. This is Jesus dividing them out at the end. Who's coming in and who is going to an eternal hell? 
It's Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne before him, will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on the right, come you who are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you naked or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. You know, hospitality might not look sensational, but if your eternity is on the line. It's an important category to evaluate your heart by. Are you hospitable? Do you care about people? Do you love people and think I'm loving this person because they're part of the kingdom work. I'm sharing, I'm giving, I'm risking. I'm doing this because I'm doing it for Christ. This is part of his body. I'm doing it unto him. I'm associating with these people that are putting me at risk because of their faith, because of him. That's what a believer does. It sounds like a hard message, but it's no harder a message than what Christ says right here. Goes on. It says. Verse 40, and the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, those on his left. Here's my left. Those on his left. Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will, they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. These are important categories. It's important to evaluate where's your heart? Is it soft? How are you doing? We're going to keep this evaluation going for next week. We're going to talk about marriage and that category of evaluation. How is love looking in terms of marriage? Are you clear in terms of the design of marriage in a culture that's gone haywire and is rejecting biblical marriage? And also in terms of money, these are the weeks of meddling, at least in terms of what God's word does in our hearts.